Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, Mickey here. You're listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I speak to Dr. Amy Goss, Assistant Professor and Researcher at University of Alabama in Birmingham, about nutritional intervention for fatty liver disease. Specifically, how a low carbohydrate diet can help with this condition. So, we begin by talking about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, how it develops and the problem with it in a pediatric population. We talk about how Dr. Goss's research shows that a low carbohydrate intervention effectively reduces fatty liver disease in both children and adults and we discuss how her diet interventions also improved diet quality and how this rolled out and what their findings actually were. We also discussed some other projects that Dr. Goss is involved in, including an LCHF approach with regards to improving overall health outcomes for metabolic health in adults and some surprising findings on how fattening french fries might be compared to, say, almonds a health food. Uh, you guys know I love a French fry. No, a fat chip. Okay, let's be fair, a fat chip. Um, this is a super insightful conversation with Dr. Goss. She is leading the way with regards to this type of research and it was such a great conversation. I really think you're going to love it. So Dr. Goss is an assistant professor of nutrition sciences at University of Alabama, Birmingham. She's also a registered dietitian and an early career investigator with expertise in conducting randomized clinical trials to examine the effects of diet quality and macronutrient composition on risk factors of chronic metabolic diseases, such as obesity, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and type 2 diabetes. The goal of her research is to identify effective, sustainable and non-invasive dietary means of preventing and reversing disease with metabolic origins. Dr. Goss specializes in MRI and MRS techniques for the assessment of fat distribution and organ lipid contact in both adult and pediatric populations and has recently conducted studies using the family-based controlled feeding experimental design aimed at improving outcomes in children with NAFOLD. And you'll hear us talk about this in the interview about just what goes into running these types of trials. And my goodness, they are not cheap, but it's super encouraging to see the results of these research and how they are using those pilot studies to inform larger trials and that there's the support for that in their research funding which is really cool. I'll pop a link to where you can find Amy at the University of Alabama and also on Instagram so you can find more of her research. Before we crack on into the interview though, just a reminder that the best way to support the podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast listening platform. That increases the visibility of the podcast out there and it makes the literally thousands of other podcasts that there are. So more people get the opportunity to learn from guests that I have on the show like Dr. Amy Goss. All right guys, enjoy this conversation that we have about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Amy, thanks so much for taking the time to speak to me today. So I really enjoyed your uh, presentation at Low Carb Denver and then I sort of got looking into your other research papers and thought it would be an awesome opportunity to discuss metabolic health, non-alcoholic or metabolic associated fatty liver disease, I think is what it might be referred to now. Um, and just other some of some of your other sort of interesting uh, papers. But um can we start with your background? So can you sort of tell me a little bit about how you got into, well, I guess medicine at first, but then of course, um, more specializing in this area? Certainly. Yeah. So um, my background when I, you know, my undergraduate degree was in dietetics and 
I went to the University of Georgia, and then following my um, bachelor's of science in dietetics, I moved to Birmingham, Alabama, where I went to the University of Alabama at Birmingham to do a dietetic internship. And I was really, um, you know, doing rotations as a part of that to become a registered dietitian is when I sort of fell in love with the research side of nutrition, just sort of feeling like, you know, we're counseling these patients on certain diets and, um, you know, just sort of realizing how much or how many questions I think I still had about nutrition and what we didn't know. And, you know, at that time, I was just learning about sort of the rates of all these different chronic metabolic diseases that were skyrocketing, you know, that were then and still are now. And it really drove me to the research side of nutrition. So I decided to stick around. Um, I did my master's and PhD there. Um, just focusing during that time on looking at diet macronutrient composition and the glycemic load of diets and how that affected um, metabolism and physiology, but more specifically looking at sort of body fat distribution through imaging techniques and how we can image the body and different organs and measure lipid and where it's stored and how it was really that type of um Fat deposition, you know, sort of I published some papers during my PhD that looked at sort of the protective effects of certain types of adipose tissue deposition. So subcutaneous fat being more protective when it came to metabolic disease, not really being a causative driving factor. And then how other types of fat deposition in the visceral cavity and in organs was more so linked to risk of diabetes and risk of um other chronic diseases that were sort of being driven by insulin resistance and, and, and poor metabolic outcomes. So that's sort of how I ended up, you know, getting into this space in particular. So, yeah, I've got a few, um, I was just thinking as you were talking, I've got a few questions. When did you, when did you start your master's, Amy? It was directly after, um, my internship year. So it's kind of a combined program where, um, you have a couple of options. You can either do coursework and a non-thesis to get your master's in nutrition or the thesis option. And because I really wanted to go the PhD route, I decided to do a thesis for my master's, which was looking at um, hormones and body fat distribution and postmenopausal oh, women. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And what year was that? That was back in, oh gosh, I think I graduated my master's in 2009. Yeah, cool. Yeah. And what was the space like in terms of nutrient um, distribution of diet and, you know, what we learned made, you know, made people gain weight versus what um, may have been out there in social media? Like how, like what was the landscape like back then? Yeah. So I'll say this, um, you know, under in my dietetics undergraduate program and then even into my master's, it was, you know, until before I started doing research um, during my PhD, I was completely unaware of like research going on looking at carbohydrate restrictive diets. I think um, I was, I was myself, I was familiar with low glycemic load because I'd been practicing it for a long time as someone who has type 1 diabetes. I was, I was diagnosed when I was two years old. Um, and so, really, like, you know, nutrition being a really large part of my life and the management when diabetes is what, you know, got me into the field to begin with. Um, my family followed a pretty strict, like what at the time was the diabetes diet, which was low fat, um, you know, not really an emphasis on carbohydrates, even though, you know, granted every meal I ate, I had to count carbohydrates. Um, so, you know, I, I think it was, I think I was like a senior in high school or going into my freshman year, I read sugar busters and it was sort of like, focusing on low glycemic, which was like kind of like a light bulb moment for me. Like, oh yeah, like that makes sense. <laughs> yes. Yeah, totally. Yeah, Interesting. That, you know, learning how much easier it made it for me to manage my own glucose levels and um and that sort of thing. So then fast forward to, you know, years later when I was doing my PhD and ended up with a mentor that had a funded NIH study to look at the effects of a low versus high glycemic load diet on fat distribution and beta cell function in adults that were at risk for type 2 diabetes. Um, oh, interesting. But yeah, so it all kind of came full circle for me when I was, you know, started in the PhD program at UAB. 
Yeah. And did that um, sort of knowledge change your own practices around your diet? I mean, you mentioned obviously the glycemic load, but later on, like how has your own personal diet sort of changed with regards to carbohydrate restriction and, and, and things like that? Yeah. I mean, I, I, being a scientist, I like to experiment. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I always sort of fall back on um, sort of this low glycemic approach. Like there are some days, you know, it's it's always some form of carbohydrate restriction, not necessarily very low, um, because I really feel like from the research that I've done, I've seen very low carbohydrate diets work for certain people with certain metabolic phenotypes, right? Yeah. And then for others, not necessarily. So I think it's like... The way, you know, this is sort of speaks to precision, precision nutrition and the way in which we can sort of figure out who's going to benefit most from which type of diet pattern. Um, so for me, I'm like, I'm convinced that I'm, you know, I'm in a happy place when I'm doing just like a low glycemic load type diet. Um, some days, obviously, I'm like probably eating less carbs than others, um, you know, so I don't really like that's sort of my general, you know, rule of thumb and, and what I follow. So, yeah. And I love that. And it's like, you know, I spoke to Andrew Kutnick on the podcast maybe two years ago now about his um, type one diabetes and sort of discovering the low carb. And, you know, even though his diet practices himself puts him in that low carb camp, he was also much like you, you know, you've got to work with, you know, individuals have to find out their, uh, what's the sweet spot for them, you know, and and the, to keep their metabolic health and their energy and, you know, much less stress and just a whole, the whole ton of factors must go into it. And you can't just, uh, you can't just go oh, low carb for everyone or don't worry about carb or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's, it's something I, you know, I've been asked that before, like, and I try being like a scientist, I try not to like, Sometimes I'm just like, do I share how I eat? Because I don't <laughs> want people to think like, just because I eat this way doesn't mean it's right for you. Um, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? So I think there are like general principles around like what, how you prevent disease and what a diet looks like to do that. But like, then also what I've learned, like specific disease states may need to approach diet differently if the goal is to like reverse disease and and that sort of thing based on sort of like your underlying metabolic phenotype and genotype. So yeah, yeah. And you know, it's so interesting with that because I do I, I do have a couple of questions about subcutaneous fat and I will get back to them. But with what you say about specific disease states, because, you know, the latest stats out of the US, and I don't know what... I, I can't recall where this comes from, although I even was just looking at it a couple of weeks ago. Like t- 93% of uh, adults apparently, or something like quite dramatic, have some level of metabolic um, dysfunction. Like is that, and you're looking specifically at disease states, and it sort of seems like we're talking to the majority of the population. Is that how you see it? Yeah. I mean, I hadn't heard that high as, as, you know, did you say 93%? Yeah. I think it was like 92 or 93. Like the last, it was 88 and then it had been revised to to 93 and, and yeah. equally like they're both pretty high. Yeah. They're both really high. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's definitely something we see, you know, really often, like, like you've said, I've focused on both pediatrics and then also adult populations. And right now, I am funded to look in kids and it's just, you know, what we're seeing in kids right now is is rather alarming, right? So, so you know, as high as 40% of children, maybe higher than that, because it goes way underdiagnosed, have fatty liver. Um, and that's kids with obesity that also develop fatty liver. But then also, I've heard a number higher than 20% of all adolescents and kids have prediabetes. So it's, wow, it's really just... Um, a shocking number. And, and what's, what's kind of even scary about that is what we're seeing from lots of data that these, de- these diseases progress real, they're rapid. It's a rapid progression in kids, right? Like even more rapid than what we're seeing in adult populations. Um, so it's, it's something that, you know, I think I've been encouraged to see, you know, the level of funding that, um, are, you know, in the United States in particular, like the NIH is willing to sort of fund these studies so we can look at these different diseases in kids and look at diet and different ways that we can address it, like through different types of interventions at the family level is what I'm, yeah. I'm really interested in. But yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's awesome. So I did my master's looking at childhood obesity um, back in uh, 99. And and part of it was, it was the, I think, uh, what was it? It was doing some sort of um, scoping exercise to figure out, you know, how to how to intervene at an environmental level. So we were sort of in the environmental space, which like, obviously very difficult but regardless like part of the process was asking parents about their children and so we had had the anthropometric measurements so we knew how many children were overweight but then if you were to ask the parents like one third of the parents who had overweight children didn't recognize that their kid was overweight and it was in fact at that time it was if you were what might have been considered of a healthy normal weight um if it was say the 1970s, like if you were that kid, you were actually deemed the skinny kid. Like the whole normalization, I think of, um, of or at that time there was this normalization of this excess sort of body weight. I suppose. I mean, like, like, do you have any thoughts or opinions on that side of things? Yeah, um, that does. Yeah, I've, I've I have read papers around you know sort of around that topic. It's definitely not my area of expertise. That sort of like the psychological, the psychology that goes behind you know sort of that normalization of of what once was considered the standard versus you know we have a whole society that it it looks different now, right? And it's, um, so it's it's sort of this it's what people are now used to, right? And it's. Um, and that's not to say, you know, part of our research, too, is looking at sort of this healthy, metabolically healthy, overweight and obese category that does exist, um, you know, and, and like I've kind of I've hinted to earlier when we were speaking about the the body fat distribution, like, you know, you, you can't necessarily a, a, attribute metabolic d- disease to obesity, per se, or to the fat deposition, um, because it's I believe those th- two things can coincide, uh, but it's not necessarily certain types of body fat storage that are is driving metabolic disease. I think it's sort of like a diet interact the diet environment interacting with the genes and the the phenotype to result in these chronic diseases that we're seeing. Um, yeah, so because you mentioned that, um, and I've and I am, am aware of it as well that you know the subcutaneous fat is a protective mechanism of the body to protect uh, the I don't know the bloodstream from having too much glucose or too many fatty acids and the complications there. So, so is there so is what you're saying that. Um, and we'll just speak about kids because that's what I want to sort of move on to as well. But, um, you know, kids who might look a little bit bigger, they actually, it might be that they've got this protective mechanism in place that might be better for them in the long run with regards to where they can store fat. Yeah. I mean, I think subcutaneous fat is so fascinating because it's like, um, having healthy, subcutaneous fat that functions well, like, right. The purpose of it is to store lipid and store excess. Um, and that's sort of the appropriate physiological response to overconsumption or overnutrition or a positive energy balance. Right. Um, it's when that subcutaneous step, subcutaneous fat stops functioning properly and storing lipid the way it's supposed to is when we start to see this deteriorating metabolic environment and you know, metabolic health. Um, so it's just a very interesting, you know, so you kind of have to un, you know, untangle what's happening with obesity versus like how diet's directly affecting the metabolic health side of things. Um, yeah. And what causes a dysfunction in that subcutaneous fat? Is it the diet? Yeah, I think there's a lot to be learned here because um, we know that the, it can become fibrotic. It can, um, macrophages or inflammation can, um can be infiltrated into the subcutaneous fat that does affect the function. Um, and I think there's just like a lot of factors that can affect it. And I think it can be a direct effect of a poor diet quality um, that sort of, so, you know, part of it, like I said, is genetics, right? Like there are um, men tend to deposit less subcutaneous fat, more abdominal fat, also at higher risk of diabetes. Um, and then, across ethnicities, there's different types of body fat distribution patterns that we see. Um, but it's pretty clear that like once that subcutaneous fat, if you're, if you can store a lot of subcutaneous fat, you may be protected from metabolic disease for quite a while. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting. They, um, um, I know that they've done studies on sumo wrestlers who clearly uh, like have this like um, amazing ability to store incredible amounts of subcutaneous fat yet they're very metabolically healthy whilst they are competing you know whilst they're still training and and stuff like that super interesting um so amy can we um sort of shift gears a little bit and talk about metabolic associated fatty liver disease and the sort of problem in children um and of course your research in you know what might help in this area so what is metabolic fatty liver disease yeah, so um, I guess like in the literature right now, there there's a sort of a debate on what we should call it. Um, yes, yeah, so what's interesting about the the metabolic associated fatty liver disease, and speaking with a lot of patients and patient advocates of folks who have had non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and even had liver transplants, they really they don't like it being called metabolic associated fatty liver disease, which is interesting. They prefer non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, um, just because from their, in, in certain demographics and their perspective of this condition, they want it to be clear that this is not alcoholic associated fatty liver disease. So they actually like that terminology. Um, so I've seen debate about, you know, what we should actually call it, but that's sort of beside the point. But That's interesting. Yeah, 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 it's interesting. So I'm, you know, I know like in some, in some, you know, areas of the field, they are trying to move towards that because I mean, it is associated with me- metabolic, you know, outcomes. Um, essentially it's, it's, liver fat deposition that's considered pathological, anything really above 5% lipid deposition that's not driven by alcohol, but it is technically driven by a number of factors, including dietary intake is the primary driver, but that when that's combined with sort of fatty acids that are being mobilized from adipose tissue and a suppression of fat oxidation in the liver causes this pathological deposition of liver fat. Um, and it's really anything over 5% if you're measuring it by like an MRI um, or using meth or spectroscopy. Um, so it's a very low threshold, right? It's like either you don't have it or if you get over 5%, you have it. And we've seen anywhere upwards of like 50%. So it go, I mean, it's a wide range um, of liver fat deposition that we see clinically. But also once you start to deposit liver fat, um, it's thought that that's going to be the primary driver of hepatic insulin resistance. So um, the liver is sort of like, you know, a major site for glucose metabolism, for um, insulin clearance in response to a meal, um, once insulin secreted in response to a meal. Um, so there's a lot of things. The liver is like this metabolic driver, right? It's it's the primary site of fat oxidation. Um, so once once you're kind of shifting toward toward fat deposition and away from this fat burning in the liver, that's when we start to see these like metabolic abnormalities start to emerge. Yeah. And um, obviously we've sort of talked around and talked about some of the risk factors for dysfunctional um, fat tissue. Are they the same risk factors for um, fatty liver disease? Yeah. So um, with fatty liver, you know, as I mentioned, like the diet drivers, you know, essentially it's like a high glycemic diet that, um, where essentially like your insulin levels high, you're shutting off hepatic fat oxidation and engaging in hepatic de novo lipogenesis, which is contributing to this, um, suppression of fat oxidation, um, which is the manufacturing of lipid in the liver from other substrates. That lipid is more likely to be stored when you're suppressing the fat oxidation in the liver. Um, Again, yeah, like, so as we were mentioning about the subcutaneous fat, if there's sort of this background of insulin resistance in peripheral tissues like adipose tissue, where insulin is no longer suppressing lipolysis like it should, and you're mobilizing lots of free fatty acids, the liver's being exposed to all of this, right? So then you just have kind of the perfect storm for liver fat deposition. Um, And over time... You know, we used to think this was a condition that we only would see in adults later in life, but it's happening really quickly in these kids that um, really can be, you know, I think it's being driven by poor diet quality and really high intake of, of different types of foods with lots of added sugar, sugar-sweetened beverage, sugar-sweetened beverages, um, fructose, you know, all these things are kind of like creating the perfect storm for this to happen. Yeah. Does activity play a role at all, Amy? Like, so is it, is it- or or are 
active kids protected? Like what's the relationship there? Yeah, that's a, I know there are plenty of studies showing that exercise is can reduce liver fat. Um, and I think, you know, being physically active for some people can play a role in, in protecting against this. But then, you know, we have plenty of kids that are, you know, they play sports, you know, that sort of thing, still have fatty liver. Um, so it's not just like a blanket, you know, these kids are all very sedentary because they aren't necessarily, um, you know, so I think, you know, physical activity is really important for these kids to focus on as a part of like a healthier lifestyle. Um, But also like in my mind, the primary driver has got to be this addressing the diet. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and just, do you have any opinions on, I mean, it's such a, a, not a loaded topic because there are so many places, I mean, so many reasons why, people eat what they eat and and what kids eat what they eat but any thoughts around that like what is what is it just that the the diet is just so different now than what it was 30 years ago and is it school lunches is it the issue in school lunches like what's the what do you think right yeah so you know i it's hard for me i i know with school lunches there's there's some problems there with you know the guidelines that, that schools have to adhere to um but ultimately that's part of the problem it's there's also what kids are exposed to outside of school that's a problem you know i mean it's a lot of it is drinking regular sodas all day and there's only so much I think schools can do to address it. I think there are minor tweaks that could happen there, right? Like not focusing on avoiding fat in natural foods, right? Like milk and cheese and eggs and not sort of taking this approach that like low fat milk's okay if it has sugar in it, but whole whole fat milk is not okay. Like that's sort of seems a little backwards to me. You know? Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Um, and really just trying to emphasize getting less ultra processed foods in the schools, right? Even though they might meet some other like guideline, like being low fat or being a certain calorie level. Um, I think folk trying to move towards a system that could emphasize more whole foods that are low glycemic, higher in fat that are naturally occurring could be beneficial in the schools. Yeah. Yeah. And just have more nutrients. Like that's the thing, right? right? It's like all the other nutrients required. It's interesting, Amy, I was at um, Costco. It's just arrived here like a year ago in New Zealand. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, and, um, and at Costco, they, you can feed your kid for like $3.50. You could have dinner for $3.50. You know, you get a hot dog, you get a two free reef or two refills of some sort of soda thing. There is Pepsi Max, so there is a sugar-free option, but the majority of them are, are sugared beverage and and fries and the rest of it. And there were just families sitting there ha- eating at Costco. And food is so expensive. And the type of food that is available to people is just, um, it's, it's even more so, it feels even more so now than it has ever. Has ever oh, been. yes, that is so true. Like, it, it's a challenge, right? It's expensive. Um, you know, I, I can go into talking a little bit about our family-based intervention where we're trying to feed families their groceries for, for months um, and trying to follow, you know, a really nutrient-dense diet that's whole foods-based is really expensive, um, especially if you're a family of, you know, four, five, six, seven, you're looking at, you know, thousands of dollars worth of groceries over a month, like lots and lots of money. Um, It's much more cost effective to rely on, you know, the more processed foods that may not be as healthy, but, you know, so it's, it's definitely a challenge um, to figure out how to address this, but um, you know, it's something that's definitely worth trying to do this research to figure out how to make it more um, accessible to families to be able to eat this way. Totally. So Amy, on that then, can we talk about your research and your family intervention? So what, um, so yeah, give us a little bit, obviously we had a bit of the background, but uh, talk us through what you did. Sure. So um, our the, we did a pilot study several years ago um, that I think we published the results in like 2021, 2020 or 2021, where we did a pilot study where we did a family-based intervention with two phases. There was like a, a short controlled feeding phase where we fed the family groceries for just two weeks. And then um, a six-week sort of free living phase. And 
then our purpose was to, um, it wasn't a weight loss diet. So we wanted to weight maintain the children, but just simply manipulate the macronutrient composition of the diet. So we tested two diets, one that was um, moderately carbohydrate restricted. So like 90 to 120 grams of carbohydrate per day, higher in fat versus a low fat diet that was higher in carbohydrate. We held the protein content um, constant on both diets. So um, the diets were both designed to be like minimally processed, high quality. So we could really just kind of get at if there's some unique effect of like the carbohydrate fat content of these diets. Um, yeah. And what percentage, Amy, sorry, of, um, of, of calories would have been from carbohydrate in those two, two scenarios? Yeah. So the, the lower carb, so the percentage varied a little bit depending on the calorie level for the kids. Yeah, of really wanted to clamp it at like less than 120 grams a day. So it, it was probably around like 15% carbohydrate. 20, it was under 25 for each kid, but um, yeah, so around like, so it was pretty low. Um, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, and obviously you're going to have the same variation with the high carb diet, but what, what, like more up around the guidelines of 55 or that's right. or yeah, it was, yeah, I think it was 55% that we aimed for that, for that diet. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it was, we would like, we measured their resting energy expenditure to try to get like a really, um, robust sort of direct. It's not direct, but a close measure of energy expenditure. Um, so the families are randomized to one of these diets. We did MRI and like a fasting blood draw at baseline in eight weeks. Um, we did a DEXA scan to look at body composition of the kids. Um, and then the kids were expected to attend one session per week with a dietitian um, with one one family member to sort of just check in, um, see how they were doing with the diet and adhering to whether or not they were adhering to it um, and that sort of thing. So after eight weeks, um, we found that our carbohydrate restricted diet did in fact induce about the kids on that diet lost about a third of their liver fat in just two months. Um, oh, amazing. Which was great. I know we were so excited. Um, but what's interesting about this too is that those kids actually um, sort of self-restricted energy. So even though we didn't want them to, they still calorically restricted. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, and that's... And, the, and know, how old were these kids? Sorry, Amy. I think our youngest was eight years old. So it went all the way from eight years old to 17. Um, so it was sort of that adolescent period, um, but younger. We're seeing we're seeing it in, in pretty young kids, like six or seven Um we didn't include those, but we had some that tried to enroll. So it's it's appearing in pre at pretty young ages. Um, yeah, so so we were really excited about those results. They did, you know, this group they lost weight, they lost the liver fat. Um, they had you know improvements in other outcomes like um, their insulin resistance that we measured by HOMA, which is like sort of a rough estimate of hepatic insulin resistance since it's based, it's calculated from fasting levels of insulin and glucose. So it's sort of considered like a, a reflection of hepatic insulin resistance. Um, improvements in their blood pressure. They, they lost abdominal fat mass. So we just across the board saw these like really great outcomes in just two months in these, in these kids, um, which, you know, we were surprised like this, it's sort of a, an age group that's really tough to do an intervention with. Um, yes. Yeah. Were the entire family following the same approach? Yes. That's what we asked them to do. So like the grocery delivery delivered enough for the entire family um, to have meals together um, and do that. And it's sort of, you know, we didn't have the money to do it longer, but and which we do now in our, in our larger intervention that's ongoing now. But at the time, this was like a pilot study. And we sort of thought of it as like, we'll deliver groceries for two weeks, sort of get them accustomed to like the types of foods they should be shopping for. We'll provide them all the menus for the entire eight weeks, the recipes, the grocery lists, but we can provide the food for at least the first two weeks. So oh, amazing. So post that two week um, grocery um, haul, they then went on to eat to um, buy their own food, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. You know, we tried to design it to be like relatively budget friendly. Um, you know, they were given every detail, like this is the food to buy. This is, um, you know, the menu, this is how much the child needs. And so, you know, so 
we were excited that even though there was like a six week free living phase, we still still saw significant results with the kids. Oh, that was amazing. And what were the families? Um, obviously, you know, after you guys, uh, or when they were doing their own food, like, did you get any feedback on how difficult it was to adhere or, or a cost issue or just even the meal plans? Like, like how did, what's more, some of the feedback around that? Yeah. So, I mean, our families were so great. Um, you know, we, we obviously would have, we've had dropouts, right. There, if you're, if the kids are just too picky, um, you know, they're just reasons why they would drop out. But, but a lot of the kids that were in the study, they just, they would tell us this was so much easier to follow than we thought it was going to be. Um, they enjoyed the food. Um, the parents would come in being like, we feel amazing. We've lost weight. You know, even though we weren't really collecting data on the other family members, there was sort of this trick, you know, trick, whatever trickle, I was going to try to trickle out effect or whatever. They were all sort of having these positive benefits from, from what they were doing. So it was all very encouraging, you know? Um, so in general, you know, we get great feedback from the kids. Um, they, they don't think it's that tough and it's a lot of food, you know, once you sort of strip away a lot of these like calorically dense foods that are, you know, highly processed, it ends up being like a lot of food to eat like a weight maintaining diet. So I think yes. they feel satiated, um, you know, so I, you know, we, we just get a lot of positive feedback for the most part. Yeah. Amazing. And then you, you use the results of your pilot study to inform your now larger study. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 So we, once we got this, this pilot data published, we went in um, for an R01 grant, which is, you know, it's a grant from the NIH that it's over five years and it's roughly like 500,000 a year. So about 3 million, um, 300 over $3 million grant. Um, so we went in back in 2020 and it was successfully funded. And we, so we started recruitment um, about a year ago on that. Um, so essentially with the larger trial, it's instead of, you know, this first one was just eight weeks. This one's going to be a six month trial. Um, we have the funding to feed the families for the first three months of the study. So uh, we have dietitians, they design the diets, they meet with the families, they, they schedule like grocery delivery through Instacart or Shipped every, I don't know if you'll have that in, where you are. No, I know what you're talking about. We, yeah, we yeah. don't, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so um, they get a, their weekly grocery delivery um, and sort of the same sort of framework that we used with the pilot, but it's just like sort of, we're, we're trying to recruit 80 families over the five years. Um, we're doing, you know, we, we're still doing the MRI at three different time points. So we do baseline after that feeding phase. And then after another three months where we're calling it like a free living phase that they're expected to continue on the diet. Um, so we're just kind of seeing if they can maintain it after we're not providing food. And will they still have um, dietitian meetings in that free living phase as well? Yes, they do less frequent. So I think at that point, it's twice a month they check in um, to kind of see how it's going. And we try to collect food records to see what they're eating during that phase and that sort of thing. Um, so, and I think, you know, what's interesting, this, this new study too, we um, we're doing some more sort of more rigorous metabolic testing with the kids. So at baseline, and then it's at um, three months after this controlled phase, we're doing a euglycemic hyperinsulinemic clamp with tracers. So um, these labeled glucose tracers. So we essentially can figure out specifically if the liver insulin sensitivity is improving with depletion of the liver fat. Um, so I think that's going to be some really exciting data to get. Um, and then also one of our aims is to sort of look at the um, plasma metabolomics, um, sort of like untargeted metabol metabolomics where we can see if there are any sort of like signatures around different metabolic pathways that may be changing in response to these different diets that's linked to liver fat and depletion of liver fat. So I think we're going to end up some really nice sort of data from this. Um, yeah. And what would that tell you, those plasma metabolites? Yeah. So the metabolites, you know, our hope is that sort of we can identify some biomarkers that either are really closely associated with degree of steatosis and then also that track with um, change in liver fat. That could be like a non-invasive and inexpensive way of like tracking liver fat long-term 
um, and over time with these, these kids. Um, and then sort of, you know, the metabolites are sort of like the end products of these metabolic pathways, right? So we can sort of, you know, get at what these diets are manipulating to cause the depletion of liver fat. Um, so yeah, so it's untargeted. So it's like kind of, you know, we have certain things we are looking at, but it's sort of, you know, a fishing expedition to kind of see like <laughs> what's associated with what and that sort of thing. So yeah, amazing. You know, it's, um, I'm really interested to know how, you know, how, do, how would parents know if their kid had non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, you know, like, so what, what kind of signs and symptoms were, would these families have then caused them to go to the doctor to then have the diagnosis? Right. And that's the thing is it's just like, it's, it's a pretty silent condition. Like most people can go their whole lives without knowing they've had it. Um, and I've heard stories about people that have, you know, maybe over time they're, they've gotten their blood work done their liver enzymes have been elevated, but they were never sent for like an ultrasound or anything like that. And then they end up with end stage liver disease um, and needing a transplant because it was sort of something like that was kicked down the road for so long. Um, and, you know, part of the reason that happens is because there is no drug to directly reverse it. Right. It usually does present um, in individuals with overweight or obesity. Um so a lot of times these kids, they will go in for like a primary care type visit with a pediatrician and the over time, if there's persistently elevated liver enzymes, sometimes they'll be sent to do an ultrasound, um, but not, not every time. Um, so we, you know, we work closely with um, UAB, well, so Children's Hospital of Alabama, which is the largest children's hospital in the state, is like right across the street from our department at UAB. Um so we get to collaborate with them pretty closely, um, the physicians over there. And it's, you know, they're, you know, unless you're in a big city like that where you're seeing specialists and that sort of thing, it's, you know, sometimes it just goes undiagnosed for a long time. Um, and Amy, is um, our triglycerides and insulin and uh, glucose, like are these uh, blood markers at all helpful that that you've seen? Like, is there? Yeah, yeah sometimes not always. And it, what's so interesting, I think that's why we like desperately need um, some some sort of biomarker that is reliable, right? Like, because even that liver enzymes can be very like unpredictable and not necessarily reflect um, the degree of liver fat and how you know serious it can be. Um, so, you know, I think the the fasting insulin is a could be a great marker in some people, maybe not everyone, because um, it can reflect that that insulin resistance, right? That's associated with the fatty liver. Um, and then also, um, yeah, the triglycerides are free are frequently elevated with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, so yeah, those are those are some more. I know there's some like surrogate when they're, you know, studies of of sort of published different surrogate ways of 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 measuring liver fat with these different sort of blood markers. Um, I think there's still like a lot of work to be done. Something that, that we can sort of hang our hat on that it, it can be a great sort of tool for, for clinicians. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I'm thinking about your, like the load of carbohydrate in the restricted group. It's actually like, if you're coming at it with a low carb lens, it's actually not that low carb compared to say a ketogenic type diet. Like I, um, what kind of carbohydrate intake would these kids or would kids in general normally be eating? Do we, do we have that data in New Zealand? We don't know what we eat. Like last nutrition survey they did was 2008, 2009. So, you know, very out of date. Yeah, I would say, I mean, gosh, I, I haven't, I'm trying to think of something that's been published in kids to sort of give an idea of what like the general population is eating. Um, I would, I mean, I'm assuming it's really high carb because that's what, when we collect baseline information on our kids that enter the study, it's, it's, you know, it's high carb. It's really high. Um, um, so I would be surprised if it was anywhere near like moderate to low, you know, that kids are typically eating, um, you know, yeah. And then 
is there any, and I guess, you know, if you can get the success with this moderate carb intake, then there's no real requirement maybe to lower it further to see what a ketogenic diet would be because then that would just, um, you'd have, I imagine, issues with adherence and, and a whole host of, of other other things, I guess. Did that ever, when you were designing the study, you were ever thinking, huh, I wonder what this would, would do? Yeah. Yeah. That was a major consideration because I've, you know, I've done studies with ketogenic diets and, and we've, and we've prescribed it clinically in our department to people. So I'm, you know, I, I've, I've seen firsthand like the major metabolic, metabolic benefits that can come from that um, in certain populations. So, you know, in, in designing the kids study, um, you know, we just thought it would be like a tough sell um, and, and that, you know, we were, it's, you know, like it's this push and pull, like you said, with adherence, right? Like how, how drastically do we need them to change the diet to see the benefits that are going to be clinically meaningful? Um, you know, we were able to pull that off with like, you know, allowing the kids to have like 30 to 40 grams of carbohydrate with each meal, um, which is still, and it's granted, granted they're low glycemic carbohydrate sources, um, like what are we talking lentils and I mean we're talking like basmati or um it's real I'm trying to think what kind of stuff we had like they would get some carbs from like um like really high fiber like pitas or wraps um everything just had to be high fiber and low glycemic like some like sweet potato maybe or um we tried to keep like the the white super starchy stuff off the diet um you know so it wasn't rice or like white potatoes or pasta. So we just, but we tried to focus more on like the non-starchy vegetables, got plenty of those, um, probably got some carbs from like yogurts and things like that. Um, carbs from fruits that were pretty low glycemic, um, um, and that sort of thing. So yeah, nice, nice. And Amy, with metabolic associated fatty liver disease like are we just not aware of what what an issue it is you know like it do, I don't feel like it gets a lot of airtime out there where you know the focus is on you know obesity and, and type 2 diabetes and, and things like that but this is a real concern or it feels like a real concern right right I know it's I the numbers we see with fatty liver you know I feel like they're so much lower than what they really are like there's so many people walking around they don't know they have it you know you wouldn't know unless um you're going to get an MRI and you know that sort of thing so um I think the numbers are much higher than we think I think it's a precursor for a lot of the diseases we see um that hepatic insulin resistance is is sort of a driver for a lot of different metabolic diseases. Um, and again, the liver is the primary sort of source of or primary place where fat oxidation occurs, right? So if we're talking about body weight, if your liver is not oxidizing fat, then you don't stand a chance of losing weight or like maintaining your body weight. Um, so I think liver health is like something that's sort of not talked about enough, like you said, you know, and how we like optimize diet and optimize lifestyle to sort of keep the liver, you know, metabolizing things the way it needs to. Um, yeah. And, and for, and I guess this is for both children and adults alike, like once they have reversed their fatty liver, are they now required to be low carb forever or for an adult, like if they reverse their fatty liver, are they never able to enjoy a glass of wine again? Like what is, yeah, what is the, um, the implications of, of having it um, to begin with for your sort of long-term practices? Unfortunately, there's like no long-term data on this. So I think it's, you know, definitely questions I have about what that looks like. You know, um, my suspicion is that this is, this is a lifelong condition. Like if you've developed fatty liver, you have to the rest of your life be cautious, right? And, and you can't go back to possibly what the way you were, you know, your lifestyle prior to reversing it because you might end up with it again, right? Because there's a highly genetic component to it. Um, you know, you've got sort of like the underlying physiology that puts you at risk for it. Um, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm thinking if someone uses like a very low carbohydrate diet or is very restricted, um, there's a chance that once they reverse it, they can sort of loosen the reins on that a little bit and maybe eat some more carbohydrate 
continuing to focus on like low glycemic load sources? Um, I think that's a great question. Like we need more evidence to suggest what the maintenance phase looks like once you reverse disease. And I think that's the case for like a lot of metabolic diseases like type diabetes. Once you reverse it, what, you know, what does that look like to maintain that for the rest of your life? Um, yeah, that's like a critical question that needs to be answered. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Um, so when does your, when does that particular study, um, end? so you got the grant, the grant in 2020, was it? And then are we looking 2025, 26? Yeah. yeah. We're looking probably 2026 is when we'll wrap up recruitment and try to get the public first publications out from that data. Um, so it will have a few years to go, but yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, it's all, that's always the hard part is like, wanting the data soon and, and having to wait for the, the pub to come out. But yeah, so we're excited. We have some more studies wrapping up where we are looking at um, sort of the effects of very low carbohydrate diets compared to low fat diets and weight maintenance conditions and type 2 diabetes. So in the absence of weight loss, um, we were looking at specifically at pancreatic lipid um, mm-hmm. to see if low carb would deplete pancreas lipid and sort of cause the beta cell to spring back to life and sort of restore first phase insulin secretion and beta cell function in patients with type 2 diabetes. So really trying to get at that, like the EDL, like the um, sort of that underlying um, beta cell function issue with type 2 diabetes. It's like the sort of driver of of type 2. Yeah. And, and what are you finding? Like, is it too early to ask you what you're sort of finding there or? Yeah, I, we don't know yet. We don't have the data analyzed. We're wrapping up recruitment in the next couple of months. So we should have papers out soon and abstracts and like conference presentations with that data soon. So I think it's going to be really exciting stuff. Yeah, nice. And that's a very, so is that more in that ketogenic space that you're like yes. 50 grams or below, 25 or below? Yeah, th- it was, I think it probably is. It was like less than 10% carbohydrate, so it was pretty low. Um, and I think the participants were technically in ketosis. Um, so, um, so yeah, it was it, it, similarly a three-month controlled feeding study uh, in adults with type 2. So we'll have that data pretty soon, which I'm excited, excited about. Oh, that sounds awesome. And um, Amy, it's funny. Like, I've got like two other papers here. I'm like, oh, I'd love to talk to Amy about these. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and we, uh, but I'm very respectful. I, I want to be respectful of your time. And I know a lot of actually with one of the papers, we have probably talked a lot around some of a similar, um, uh, similar information, but particularly the LCHF as a strategy for central fat for middle-aged adults. Like that was a paper which I found sort of interesting. Can we just... What is the utility there? Like what 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 has your research sort of um, looked at? Yeah, so this goes back. So we did, I saw the paper you sent. That's That was one of the clinical studies we did. We've done um, a couple more controlled feeding studies where we've looked at sort of, um, so that one was, I think, the where we saw middle-aged adults that were um, in a, attending a clinic where they either were prescribed a ketogenic diet or a low-fat diet. Um, and then we looked at sort of over time, we did DEXAs on them to look at like changes in body fat distribution. And we did C-selective depletion of the abdominal fat, central adiposity. Um, so we, we did that on the heels of a couple of other studies that we did that were controlled feeding and not necessarily clinical. Um, yeah, so we did, um, and this was one of the first trials I worked on. It was a weight maintenance study over two months where we did a high versus low glycemic load diet that was, um, it wasn't like very low carb. It was probably 40% carbohydrates. So still pretty high. Um so in gram amounts, and I, and again, obviously, this is going to change individual to individual. Like, yeah, yeah is it what around? It was 200? a lot. Yeah, it was like over two hundred, probably, mm. um, depending on their energy needs. You know, because we we clamped it at the percentage, so it's going to you know vary in the grams. But um, we found that in two months, the participants without weight loss on the low glycemic diet lost, um, I think it was fifteen percent of their visceral fat and that was measured by ct scan so specifically that fat that's around the organs in the abdominal cavity um which was like we were like where'd the fat go 
Yeah, and so is that like obviously significant, but is that like an absolute amount? Is that quite a change in in what you can see? Yeah, well, what's interesting, so like, you know, relative to total body fat, the visceral fat cavity in that age group is like, it's pretty small when it's talking absolute amount. Um, But so they didn't lose weight. So we, we speculate one scenario that could be true is that they are technically like redistributing that lipid somewhere um, to like more metabolically healthy depots, um, you know, because of the diet, because insulin's down, um, you know, potentially affecting inflammation and a bunch of different things. Um, So that was one study we did. And then another one we did that was controlled feeding with the same diet. So low glycemic, high glycemic, controlled feeding. This was a crossover study. So all the women consumed one diet for eight weeks and then switched to the next diet for eight weeks. And again, we measured like beta cell function, um, insulin sensitivity, the body fat distribution. And we found with the low glycemic diet, the women selectively depleted their visceral fat, their intermuscular fat was depleted. um, And then also that low glycemic group retained lean mass, whereas the high glycemic group lost lean mass. Um, and again, this is in weight maintenance. So it's just like the change in body composition and fat distribution. And then also we saw improvements in insulin sensitivity and beta cell function in response to the low glycemic diet. Um, and it was really doing those two studies that kind of set us down the path of looking at more restrictive carbohydrates um, diets. So um, we did the low glycemic and then followed that up with several like ketogenic diet studies, looking at how that affects body fat distribution and also beta cell function, insulin sensitivity, and all the metabolic outcomes in different populations. Um, yeah. And did you find an, yeah, an enhanced response? Yeah. Well, so what's interesting about it, um, this the one study we haven't published yet where it's like designed to be weight maintenance. So we haven't published that yet. But the one we did with ketogenic diet and older adults, um, you know, with a ketogenic diet, it's so hard to weight maintain somebody. Like you put them on the diet and they lose weight. So it's like it's virtually impossible to keep the body weight maintained to look at specifically if there's some unique effect of like the low carb, high fat in the absence of weight loss. Um, because the one older adult study we did, they lost tons of weight. They did deplete a lot of visceral fat and a lot of intermuscular fat, um, improved their insulin sensitivity, as you expect, um, retained their lean mass. So that was, a, we published that study several years ago. Um, but, it, you know, that was one of the ones where we, we didn't control the feeding though. So we're, with this new study, we're hoping that like providing the food could actually Hopefully we can weight maintain them and, and see what that what happens, you know, in the absence of loss. So Yeah. And do we just think that if you're gonna lose weight at the same time, you, it's going to be a more potent sort of effect? It, yeah, it's possible, right? So I think in the real world setting, people, you know, weight loss is a good outcome, right? But when we're like at it's when it's an experimental question, um, that we're trying to like answer a scientific question instead of like implement yes. it clinically, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. we kind of want our, our condition to be, you know, achieve that Controlled. weight maintenance and that control. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. And, uh, you know, I think when you talk like, because of course, out in the public and social media, when we're talking about weight loss, which I know actually you're not trying to make, or maybe healthy diets, maybe healthy diets is a better way to sort of put this. Then there is arguments for, you know, you know, as long because the calorie is the most toxic um, part of the diet. So as long as you're in energy balance, then health should just, you know, your health should be fine. But from what you're saying, if maybe if people do, if they are still in weight maintenance, then maybe it's not the calorie per se, but it's where the calories are coming from if they've got metabolic issues. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. It's so hard to tease apart, you know, I think because like certain diet patterns just put you at greater risk of being in positive energy, right? So it's like, um, it's hard to tease all these things apart, right? Because one thing affects the next. And, you know, a diet that's sort of bad for your metabolic health is going to make you more hungry is going to affect the way, you know, you know, the, the, your food choices, and it's going to affect a lot of things sort of in a real world setting. So, um, so yeah. And, and I think 
the hunger part, the way a diet affects appetite and hunger is like, it's not a huge consideration. Um, you know, so it's all very interesting. Yeah, I agree. Um, Amy, now very quickly, because I don't think this will take much discussion anyway, but I am a fan of um, not French fries per se, but I do like a pub chip, you know, a nice big thick pub chip. <laughs> and so I was like, I was really intrigued by your study that looked at, yeah. hey, hang on, what's going to happen whether or not we eat French fries versus almonds, for example. Yes. I know. I, I love this study. This was a very, you know, an interesting study that, you know, I was not a lead on this one, but yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, was, I was fortunate enough to get to be a part of this team. So, um, you know, David Allison and Daniel Smith were were the PIs of this particular study. Um, but, the, you know, the it was sort of wanting to prove there were so many epidemiological studies coming out saying potato consumption was such a major driver of obesity um, and weight gain, right? So with like increasing servings of potatoes per day, you're increasing your likelihood of, of having obesity. Um, and really like, you know, there's so many problems with sort of singling out individual foods like that when it comes to looking at how food affects health. And, you know, we, we, we know it's an overall dietary pattern, right? That, it, you know, you can't really kind of demonize one food in particular. So we designed a study, you know, David Allison has done so many studies like this, where you take a, like a myth, what you would consider, or something that is sort of um, accepted as something that drives obesity, whether it's like not eating breakfast or, or things like that, and sort of actually designing a randomized clinical trial to test it, right? Um, to see if it's actually true. So um, they had the idea that we would do a randomized clinical trial and actually feed people French fries every day to see, you know, if it affected their body weight um, and their fat mass. So um, what's interesting, you know, almonds are, are widely considered a health food, you know, that you know, eat almonds instead of these other things. So that was our control. Um, and then so they fed, had people eat French fries every day for, I think it was three months. I'm yeah, like, yeah, no, yeah. I think, I think it was three months. Okay. Yeah. To look at um, changes well, in thirty height. days, thirty, 30 days. days, thirty days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, so uh, you know, they found that these. Uh, so I'll say this too: a lot of these folks were healthy. A lot were college age students that were like on our college campus. Um, so they were healthy folks, right? Um, but what we found that there was no weight gain, right, um, over these thirty days from eating fries every day, which is an interesting outcome, right? And, and yes. it didn't, but it didn't differ from the folks that ate almonds every day as a snack. Um, so I think you know what that kind of spoke to is that pe some people, you know, you can feed them these types of things and they do compensate calorically. Um, they didn't eat something else because they ate the fries. So that it's just like a very unique question that no, in these people, the fries did not cause them to gain weight. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I found it interesting because, you know, as a nutritionist and, you know, and it's interesting in terms of macros, like I have, I only really got interested in macros maybe three years ago, even though I've been a nutritionist for like, you know, 25 years. Um, but and, and in my head, I used to catastrophize things like enjoying every once in a while, like I say everyone, okay, every week, all right, um, you know, fries at a pub and, and I would completely avoid them um, because, because of that kind of um, belief, I suppose, that there are just going to be certain foods that are going to be uniquely fattening compared to, compared to others, you know. So, right, right. Um, yeah, that's right. a like if you, an important point, yes. Yeah. Even like, you know, we talk about these dietary patterns and it's, it's, I think the background of all of that is like, you still have to enjoy food, right? And not, and, you know, like you said, like, if you want to have fries or chips, you know, as a part of like your diet, you know, it's just important to keep in mind, like, to not be too restrictive, like allow yourself to do those things, but also keep in mind, like, what you're doing maybe 80 or 90% of the time probably needs to be look a different way, you know? So. 100%. Yeah. What is, someone's, what is someone, uh, I follow someone in there, like there are no, oh, there are, there are always trade-offs. I don't know. They're like, you know, in nutrition, there are always trade-offs. Right, and, right. um, and so if enjoying a um, Makiki fry means that I miss out that I just decide, you know, choose not to have cheesecake or whatever. Actually, that's fine with me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cause that's a pattern thing anyway. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. 
Um, Amy, you, um, you're involved in so many interesting studies and I'm really looking forward to sort of following along with, you know, the, the, your research as it unfolds. Um, can you let us know where we can find more about your research and your studies? Where's the best sort of port of call? Yeah, so um, we are currently about to release a website called Diet for Diabetes. Um, it's affiliated with our UAB page, but it's it's an independent URL. It's just like, I think it's just di dietfordiabetes.com, I think. Um and so it's going to go live here shortly. And it has information about past studies, ongoing studies. We put our publications there. Um, you can see information about our team. Um, and then also, I do have like a Twitter that I try to push out publications as they come out as well. And like new grant funding and stuff like that. I, I'm not great about it, but I try to do it, like remember to do it as much as possible. Um, and that's at Amy M. Goss. Um, and then I also have an Instagram where I'm posting some things too that that I recently started. So that is awesome. Yeah, that's at Dr. Amy Goss. Dr. A that's lovely, Amy. Thank yes. you. I will um, put the links in the show notes. And um, that website will be super interesting. And I think also for people who might want to have, you know, if they go to their doctor and they've they're looking for solutions, like even them alerting their doctors to, to, you know, these types of um, resources is just, right. you know, and great for that. Yeah. And we're going to try to post um, sort of menus and, and information about the diets that we're using in our studies as well. Um, and then also we eventually will have like a virtual um, counseling option with our study, with our dietitians on staff too. That is so great. This is a lot going on. It's amazing. I know, it's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Amy, thanks so much for your time this morning. I really yeah. enjoyed chatting. It was, uh, thank you so much for having me. This is great. <laughs> Alrighty, hopefully you enjoyed that. Um, I certainly really enjoyed chatting to Amy and I'm really excited about you know the future of this space with regards to the types of trials that her and her team are running. Next week on the podcast, I have back on the show with me my really good friend, Michelle Martangi, all about mindset and her new course to help people get to the bottom of their resistance when it comes to weight loss and their success in this space. So I don't doubt that you'll look forward to that conversation. Until then though, you can catch me over on Instagram, Twitter, and now threads at Mickey Willardin, Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, or head to my website, mickeywillardin.com, where you can book a one-on-one -on -one consultation with me. All right, guys, you have a great week. See you next week.